Welcome to Infinity License, everyone. For those of you just tuning in, uh, Lenny DeFranco just iced himself for <laughs> he just... Everyone's tuning in. The podcast just started. Hey, look. We got a listener in Hanoi, Vietnam. Shout out Hell to yeah, Hanoi. Hanoi rocks. Um, shout out to Hanoi. Uh, you know what? Did Last time I was in Hanoi, I was shaving out an army helmet. <laughs> <laughs> Doing smack. As, hey, that was just the time. They didn't even want me back, but I came anyway. It was 1997. <laughs> <laughs> I was also seeing, I was seeing Hanoi Rocks, actually. <laughs> uh, welcome to Infinity License. Uh, that was Lenny DeFranco. I'm Brian Pisano, uh, here for another uh, week of uh, Infinity License. Um, a podcast nobody asked for, but we're doing it, and we love you for it. And we shout out again to our listeners in Hanoi, Djibouti. We still love you, but you got to pick up the pace. Hanoi is outpacing you right now. Djibouti, come on, <laughs> come on! Uh, I want to really want to hear from you, uh, Azerbaijan. As always, want to hear from you. Um, you know, and I want to hear from uh, my friends in Tajikistan this time. No, wow, yeah, that is, that, that's you know that uh, in the Central Asian world. There are very roiling ethnic tensions between like Uzbeks and Tajiks and Turkmen. Well, and so that's like very offensive in a certain context <laughs> that we have no idea. Well, then of. maybe you know what? I'll give the Tajikistan a chance. Look, we've only ever shouted out Azerbaijan. Prove me wrong, Tajikistan. Prove, prove everything that they say about you. Yeah. Prove me wrong. Uh, I'm not here to get into the ethnic uh, differences between all the stands. Uh, I'm sure <laughs> step, step the yard. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, so, uh, I mean, yesterday afternoon, it's our first topic that we got to talk about today, was <laughs> something that we didn't anticipate talking about this soon, but I think everyone figured it was ine- inevitable. Our good boy, the Mooch. The Mooch is gone. Ten days. Vam- or as the New York Post said it, Vamooch. Vamooch. Um, there's a lot funny about this, but, uh, I mean, it was funny inherently uh, when he got hired. I mean, he was, like, kind of a known... Guy as a financier, is, um, you know I didn't know this about him, but he, he actually douche. He was a douche. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a douche. Yeah, he actually was not a hedge fund manager. He was someone who he didn't pick. He didn't pick investments. Oh, he was a fund of funds manager. So he just invested in other, like basically, like if you want to, he's like, like a reinsurance of funds, kind of like. His, but anyway, he. So one of the things that was uh, interesting about the. The, him getting fired was that like he's he's had like a horrible ten days right yeah, like yeah, you yeah. saw that recently the uh, Harvard Law reviews or the Harvard alumni thing listed him as dead <laughs> I didn't I didn't see that one I only knew that uh, his wife had a kid and divorced him essentially the same, yeah. as simultaneously she was like pushing the kid out the third ever him. like prenatal like or like, during natal divorce right. proceedings yeah. Um, yeah. And the other two were in the Bible. <laughs> like, it's just not out there. It's like Jeremiah was so pissed off <laughs> that uh, Jehoshaphat was, Jehoshaphat. was, was, was uh, cucking him. Jessica <laughs> and Jezebiah <laughs> separated at the birth of Balabiah. Um, anyway, so, yeah, Scaramouche, he's had a tough couple of weeks, but... Uh, oh, and he got fired. <laughs> well, he got fired, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah but one of the and he sold of off the, that business. I'm sorry to keep interrupting you, but he sold off that business that he tanked and then brought back to life, and then, yeah, he sold so, off his assets. Yeah. But, so that's an interesting angle on this, though, because he was trying... I think that there's a conspiracy theory here that that business was not worth that much. Uh-huh. It was tanking in value, and so by selling it, under the auspices of a government position, yeah, yeah, yeah. he actually um, was able to unload it easier. Here's another thing. We were not planning on talking about this because I was not informed enough about this, but I will say it anyway because I heard this on a podcast. Um, the bidder that he got for Skybridge was some mysterious like conglomerate that no one knows who it's owned. It's owned by a Chinese charity. Oh, that's the closest no, thing I can. So this is a company that is so mysterious they're, they're that, just trying to find a previous, way to get, there's a, yeah. when, Whenever apparently um, Chinese uh, com- or foreign companies invest in American companies, there's a government body that tries to assess who they are and is right. this a fit entity to be investing money in the United States. They actually turned down this company for money for, uh, for a previous acquisition because they didn't know who they were. Uh-huh. So that's who was pressure, who was going to buy Skybridge. I, I don't know if they did buy Skybridge, but basically th- that's under the Treasury Department. So he could just walk over to Stephen Mnuchin's office and be like, hey, how about you approve the sale of my pretty 
quickly declining in value right. company. Yeah, and sell it to the this shady red Chinese company. <laughs> he did have to, red Chinese. It's such an ugly term. I know. <laughs> no, I mean, like, I I don't know if he actually. Uh, I mean, he paid capital gains tax on it. I, I'm sure he preferred to have not gone this way, but. Um, Anyway, the thing that, that caught my... I mean, the whole thing is, is funny, but the thing that caught my eye was this line in the New York Times article. Um, and uh, it was basically that uh, uh, Trump originally uh, approved of the wisecracking Long Islander, but soon soured on him. <laughs> and it, it just reminded me of, like, the, a cartoon character. Yeah, like, hey, this is, like, Jimmy J, the Italian pigeon. Hey, and then they, like, kill him off because he doesn't do well in focus it's, groups. It's, it's Poochie. It's, it's, <laughs> and, and which, uh, I, that was, when I saw you tweet that, I was like, oh, my God. I, like, you always inspire me going on to the Frankie act and firing up because uh, Poochie is the perfect example because they're like, well, we need to, you know, this, this other guy, the cartoon's not working out. So who do we get? We get Poochie in. We got to get this new flashy dog in here. And then it, it turns out Poochie sucks. <laughs> yeah, hi, Roy. Hi, Roy. Hey, <laughs> Mrs. S. Mrs. S. Moon in the city with two sexy ladies. Ah, goodbye, Roy. I'm gonna miss you. But um, but so then I was just like, and then it was perfect because then they're just like, well, as fast as Poochie and the Moochie came into our lives, <laughs> they were just like jettisoning him back to Long Island. <laughs> the, the, the Moochie died on his way to his home planet. No, to self, the Mooch died on his way back to Long Island. <laughs> like it's so fucking. Foreign alien plays where uh, sure, like, his, his grease de- balls come from. Yeah, his, his departure was similar to like when like he made some impassioned speech like, "Look, Mr. Trump, don't fire me. I like I have so much to bring to the table. You and I have so much in common. I'm from Long Island. You're from Jamaica States." And he's like, "You know what? You're not fired." And then like two <laughs> seconds later, he just hears on TV, "It's like I'm fired." <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's, like, it's like it's like Homer's Poochie turns to the camera, and then it's just like Poochie died on his way to his home. I have to go now. Frame slides off. <laughs> I have to go now. <laughs> so the, the, there's another interesting aspect of this, not to uh, harp on this subject, which everyone is talking about, but I, I did kind of think it was interesting that. Um, you know, there's a famous quote, well, famous relatively, in Crippled America, the mm-hmm. book that turned... <laughs> it's the book that Trump wrote for his campaign. I mean, you know, so, <laughs> someone he never met wrote it, but yeah, yeah, yeah. it turned it turned from uh, Crippled America to then, once he got elected, it turned into Great Again. <laughs> this is an identical book. Really? Yeah, of course. They just yeah. retitled yeah, it. Yeah, they just retitled it for the Does second it have, like, thing. a different ISBN? cover, yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know if it has yeah, a different yeah, ISBN. Yeah. I know it has a different cover. He's looking not... Mean on the second one. He's looking more like, like he's like, like yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's more like I'm going to make America great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, it, there's this line from there where he's like talking about um, Anderson Cooper cited it when he was trying to say that he shouldn't, that Trump shouldn't be picking fights with Mika Brzezinski, you know. And he was like in the in the book Trump writes or someone yeah. as Trump. Um, writes, uh, you know, the the White House used to always be professional, and you know, you need to project this air of discipline and stuff. And, it, and it compl- of course, it's completely the opposite of everything that Trump stands for. Right. What's surprising me about this is that, again, with uh, Kelly, who's this, like, Marine general, you know, yeah, very yeah. hard-ass military guy. Yeah, disciplined guy. Um, yeah. It's just astounding to me how much Trump can project this air mm-hmm. of discipline. And he kind of sells it. I mean, like, if you're stupid and you don't – and you just pay attention to optics, yeah. he has the ability, because he's an old, successful white guy specifically yeah, – yeah. He can project the air of institutionalism, you know, of like, I demand that everyone have discipline. We operate a tight ship around here. Everyone should be professional. Yeah. And even though he's the least professional, least disciplined, least competent administrator, he's a school board administrator, let alone fucking president. You mean the guy who can't spell while he tweets (laughs) shit from the toilet? (laughs) Like, (laughs) he's not professional (laughs) and disciplined. He's going to accidentally tweet a picture of himself taking a shit one day. It's like... Actually, that would be. Remember a couple weeks ago, we said what would be the funniest thing that someone hacked Trump's Twitter oh, yeah. account? Yeah, just have the camera activated while it's while oh, his Twitter God. application is. Open. It's like Periscope, like why? Yeah, it just turns yeah, into yeah, Periscope. Yeah. Oh my God, that would be unreal. Taking a loud ass old man. It's <laughs> a McDonald's shit. <laughs> yeah, but um, but so the 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 idea I think behind what he's doing here with with Kelly is that. You know, he went to a military school. Mm-hmm. He probably suffered what we in modern day called trauma, yeah. <laughs> or maybe sexual <laughs> abuse, or whatever the hell happened to him. Oh yeah, at the you know the uh, West Elm Center for Distraught Boys. Yeah, and um, 
I think that to play Dime Star Psychologist on Trump, which is pretty futile. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're all trying. <laughs> well, it's just, I mean, what's the point? Like, there's yeah. in there. But um, it's funny to me that he, or it's, it's Signal, that he keeps trying to elevate this idea of discipline and stuff because he knows that it's what, it's the ethos that he respects. It's the last thing he respected, basically, yeah. that was hanging over him. In the situation he has now, Trump has been able to put it's the ideal dress-up game for him. Now he has the ultimate military man telling everyone else what to do. Everyone else is under his thrall, yeah. just like the system that he felt comfortable with when he was growing up. Except for now, that guy reports to him, and he's the only one who's not responsible for it. <laughs> it's the ultimate fuck you to your teachers. It's the ultimate validation of your teachers. Yeah, it yeah. is. It's the perfect game for him. So he's actually Trump is doing really well right now. I have to say, I, like for himself. Yeah, for himself, and I. I don't know, yeah. I, I don't know what is like. Those, those things. I think it, it 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 that illustrates the point of what you're talking about, where people just choose to listen to the part of him where he seems like disciplined. They're like, yeah, he, like where people. What even before Trump ran for president, I remember in college trying to explain to people that I'm like, Trump is a, not a good business person. Like he's a good show business person for sure, but he's not a good business person. You could go back and look and read everything from, you know, tabloid papers from papers from the eighties through the nineties, my entire life. You'd know that he's been in debt his entire life. He's just somehow like been able to coast on having an infinite line of credit. Um, What's like, the new podcast name, by the way? Infinite, infinite credit license. Infinite line. <laughs> infinite, it should be. Because <laughs> uh, we all do. I mean, I guess it's kind of a, maybe he has a bit of a mirror on the rest. Because we do kind of all have an infinite Yeah, it's like credit. Debt Bombers in that stupid uh, Super Sad True Love Story novel, which uh, if any of you have heard of, it's... Applicable. Speaking of which, let's go to the next yeah, topic. Yeah. So which anyway, is, so the Scarapucci's out. Scarapucci's out. Uh, Where's Scarapucci? Where's Scarapucci? Where's Scarapucci? Somewhere on ninety five, just crying, <laughs> <laughs> just trying to get back to, to Long Island. He's definitely gonna be caught in a bar. Who was that guy? That Vito uh, politician from Staten Island who got caught in a bar. Um, he was like having sex with some woman in the bathroom. Not Grim. Uh, Vito, well, Grim, Grim was the one who was arrested or recently brought up on charges for like tax evasion and stuff like that. But, Maybe, um, yeah. Well, anyway, yeah, yeah. Scamboo is getting caught in a bar, uh, unsuccessfully trying to have sex with someone. Yeah. Um, um, all right, we're on to the on today. So speaking was, of infinite, infinite light uh, credit, credit. Yeah. Um, so the infinite currency uh, had a big, big day in the in the in the history of cryptocurrencies today. Bitcoin. It's still at its all time high. Really? It's, yeah. I was, I, I, has uh, there been a new block yet? Um, yes, there has. So, uh, so what I happened? Think as of like three or four today, but I can look at the cobbled enough. Yeah. Um, so what happened today was that there was the first ever Bitcoin fork, and yeah. uh, this is hard fork. Hard for it, yeah. yeah. Um, which is what Scary Mooch is going to be trying to do to some <laughs> unsuspecting uh, not <laughs> throughway passenger yeah. uh, stopping off for a drink. Um, yeah, like, you know, bit, 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 this is, hopefully doesn't get too wonky, but like Bitcoin has had one history, one audit trail for its entire history. Every transaction ever is, is in this file that's at this point like over 120 gigs big. And um, it decided, like, basically a political dispute inside of the currencies community um, decided that, like, one, one, wanted, one kind of break-off faction wanted to go for speed of processing, which is a huge problem, and the other one wanted to go for security and, and constancy. And they split, and as we know from, uh, you know, Ali versus Abu Bakr... Yeah. <laughs> The, yeah. Another hard fork that went really well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Slavery versus non-slavery. Another yeah. hard fork that went really well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's what happened. So, yeah. Do you have any uh, thoughts on this as, a, as uh, an investor? Yeah, as, as a small-time Bitcoin player, um, I, I definitely, um, I got in Bitcoin relatively early. I wish I'd gotten in even earlier. I remember reading about it a lot in when we graduated college. I was really interested in studying um, economics in two thousand nine. Uh, and I, I read um, Satoshi's uh, white paper on it, and I was like, this is really cool. I should mine these. And I had built my own computer at that point, and I could have easily mined. It was, this is my I should have, should have, could have, would have story where I could have Well, mined. we all think we should yeah. yeah. But, but anyway, so but then when after the first uh, spike and then crash, I decided once I had done my homework, I got back into the market. Um, I'm in favor of – I'm more of the, leaning the SegWit, which is the more security-based uh, – um, The traditionalist. Tradition, traditionalist, which is what I think it will – You're a dead loyalist. Because, well, because now, you, you, now there's Bitcoin 
there's BTC and then there's Bitcoin Cash. Yeah, ca- cash by Bitcoin. Cash by it's Bitcoin. Like which, so it's like essentially there's doubled, like the money supply is doubled. But what's going to happen is that one that one route, I think Bitcoin Cash is just going to become, I think some people are going to try to right now, they might ca- cash in hard and then just sell their Bitcoin Cash on whatever exchange will buy Bitcoin Cash on it um, for whatever price. Um, and that you know they they might get lucky and or they, and, and just like cash out high or they might uh, but I, I just think that um, I think it's gonna I think BTC is gonna remain the the currency I think people are gonna prefer the, the security of the blockchain and the security of like what is currently in in place I think is too much of a value and what the value in Bitcoin is right now so it's like yeah. even though it takes me a while I, I I transferred a large amount of my BTC off of an exchange to my wallet with my private keys and all that stuff in anticipation of the hard fork um and uh and it's you know like uh, i did that it took a while to do it i mean the transaction took it's kind of funny because like having a lot of money sitting out there on the blockchain for a while and you're like um why is my money not in my wallet (laughs) (laughs) at least you were at mount gox yeah yeah when mount gox completely just evaporated yeah yeah so like that's the thing so i mean that's why it's i keep it most of my coins in a private wallet where i have the private keys so yeah it's pretty hard tough to hack um, By the way, I'm giving uh, Brian a nerd swirly right now, just yeah, as he's talking. Hey, look, uh, when uh, uh, the meek shall inherit the earth with BTC. Uh, I mean, if I, dude, if I, I wish I had been one of those people who, you know, like... I got in at 400. Four, dude, I, that was what I was thinking now about. I'm playing, now I'm playing with house money. I'm just uh, like, I've sold off that $400, and now I'm just like, I have, and I've made it. Spot investments here and there, and by house money you mean like you're going to be able to buy a house, your first yeah, house maybe. with your Bitcoin, yeah, yeah, with one singular Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> well, so this is what's funny about this is like, um, you know, is so you're kind of saying the the classic Bitcoin is probably going to prevail. Is there going to be a classic Bitcoin anymore? Because you know, I like the idea of Bitcoin as an idea. I think it's an evolution of money that uh, represents. Certainly solving a problem of money that it's about time that we solve, which is how do we really fully transfer the – not just make it so that you can transfer real, real world dollars, fiat or not or whatever medium you want over the internet. But how do we make it native to the digital world? And I think Bitcoin has done that and it's like very good that it did. But I also get a kick out of people who see this as basically the underpinning of like – some very radical Misesian. No, yeah, that's the, 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 the Andy, the Andy Ancaps of the world, the anarcho capitalists of the. Yeah, like they're. Yeah, no, I, I don't subscribe to that. I think it. I certainly think Bitcoin serves a great service, and the blockchain for sure is technology that is going to be is here to stay, and will not only revolutionize banking, but a lot of other like services and a lot of other ways. We it's going to liberate us all. Is what yeah, you're saying. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> liberate us all from the oppressive Federal Reserve system. Uh, but no, I think it'll just. I, I think the blockchain is a good technology. I don't think it'll. Yeah, I don't think it'll completely eliminate fiat currency. Well, well the blockchain itself might be more valuable than yeah, Bitcoin. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like yeah. the idea of transa- of being able to confirm transactions in public without an intermediary. Um, I'm more of a, like I'm more of a fan of black, Bitcoin in the way that I don't think it's gonna yeah, institute this Austrian school of economics utopia that these like nerds are jerking off about. Well, but like, but I do think that it is. It's a it, what and what I thought since the beginning, you know, however many years ago, eight nine years ago, or, uh, was that this is a this is a interesting experiment in the concept of money is just exchange. It's just a it's a mode of exchange, and that's all it is. And you determine the value, and you determine, and then you just know the network, and you know the means of like I give you a dollar, and in return I get a piece of gum or whatever it is, you know. Uh, um, and so, <laughs> which so is it? Which is when, when, yeah, when when the in the in the oncoming inflationary spiral that we're about to enter into, when one piece of gum costs one dollar, <laughs> and the next day it costs a hundred dollars, and the next day you know we're Zimbabwe. And, and so the and so the inflation Weimar Republic Germany. While you're mentioning, yeah, the, yeah, the ver- the river, river Valley people have a, a wheelbarrow for we give me the Zimbabwe dollar yeah, like 30 yeah, yeah. trillion dollars per blue yeah. um, but I mean the, the inflationary uh, concern is what I think led Bitcoin to originally have a hard be a hard currency yeah and you know, as far as I could tell, when when did his white paper come out? Like two thousand nine, yeah, two thousand eight, two thousand nine. It was like right. The paper came out in two thousand eight, and then Bitcoin itself became a thing in two thousand nine. Right. Yeah. So I mean, it was it was around the time when I remember the discourse was very heavily favoring of a favoring a hard currency yeah. that could not be inflated, and people were saying, and the Fed, and Occupy, and all this sort of shit. 
uh, which, like, you shouldn't end the Fed for reasons that are very demonstrable. Like, you're going to have worse depressions. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's, you know, there's no one in charge. No one driving the bus. Well, no, I want to go get my bank notes from the Citibank on 7th Avenue and 1st Street. Like, that's like, I mean, I want to go back to the, the pre-Central Bank line. Yeah, be able to redeem it for gold or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, or, but, no, or free silver. Okay. <laughs> but, I mean, it, it, I think that what this fork kind of hints at is there there is is there at all a hard currency left anymore? I mean, we already now have um, the, the dream of competing currencies. We've talked about Ron Paul before. Yeah. And one of the things that Ron Paul used to say was that let's have the ability to let, – let's let the government allow people to compete with currencies, which is kind of dumb because, first of all, the government's always going to try to enforce its dollar as the thing that it yeah. collects taxes in. That yeah. you know, it, the, the last thing the U.S. government wants to do in sane times is depreciate the value of this, you know, the world petrodollar and the reserve currency right, and all that right, stuff. Right. It doesn't want to do that. Um, so it would not it would not ever allow competing currencies. But we basically have that now. We have yeah. Ethereum, we have Litecoin, we have Do- I don't know if Dogecoin is still around. Yeah, Dogecoin is still around. I got a couple Dogecoins. How around. many how many Dogecoins are you going to give to someone who writes a uh, comment on this? I think call? I have I got to find it somewhere in the hard drive, but I actually think I have a shit ton of Dogecoin. So I'll give I will give somebody a point I'll give you one Dogecoin if I if I have it. Uh, <laughs> if you comment Dogecoin anywhere on the SoundCloud or tweet at our Twitter at Infinity License without an E at the end, um, and say Dogecoins for me, I will I will send that to you. I'll find was it fit, was at Infinity License taken? I think it was. Yeah. Uh, or I don't know. We have to look that up. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, was not lazy t- <laughs> I was like, oh, I yeah. tapped enough for one day. No, I'm not putting that last E on there. Um, so the the question here is like, is there going to? So there's already there's already competing currencies. There's already this kind of like uh, anarchic dream of like letting people transact however they want. And Bitcoin and block blockchain and and more so has already allowed this to proliferate. Now that Bitcoin is not no longer the hottest you know thing on the block, uh, and it's already forking all over the place now. I mean, clearly there are going to be more forks in the future now that the one. Yeah, is but like the, there's like there's also is there any limit, limit to Bitcoin, how much it can expand? No, yeah, but Bitcoin, I think this will be the lesson. So my argument would be is that Bitcoin, since it has kind of the first mover advantage to it. Um, where they'll make mistakes or they'll do some things, but like there have been other there have been other cryptocurrencies that have failed real super hard because they're essentially Ponzi scheme cryptocurrencies that were just like, well, we just forked and now you have we doubled the money supply, so now you have twice as many for the same reason that like why, why crazy inflationary cycles are uh, or are fear. It's like when you're a little kid and you're like to your mom, you're like, well, why can't we just give like the homeless guy money? And not really. Well, we can't do that. Like, give him. You know. Well, if he can't afford a house, why don't we just give him one hundred thousand dollars and get him an apartment? And it's not realizing that, like, well, that'll cause a insane inflationary spiral. So there's some like there have been some other. I don't years. understand that. I, the reason we don't. The reason I don't give homeless people money is because I can't afford it, and like because I I, I have to justify my. Penury, my, but it's because I don't want to give them money. You no, know, my point, my point being about like, why doesn't the government just say, "Hey, well, why don't why don't we just give somebody money?" Why, it's the same reason why we don't just print money and give it to people. Well, it's the we should print money and give it to people. We should, and I say that because like, if they're going to try to ease uh, the money, if they're going to have expansionary easing um, uh, policy. They should just give it to fucking people who are going to spend it. Give it directly to the bank. Yeah, I get that. So my, that's not, I understand what you're saying. My, and maybe that is actually a right policy. But my point is that there have been other cryptocurrencies that come along just been forking a lot and just being like, well, we quadrupled. So now you used to have one Bitcoin. Now you have four or one like Lenny coin and you have 10 now. But I have then, way more than 10 Lenny coins. <laughs> and, and, and so, but then they, they inevitably collapse because the value, because there's like, oh, well, there's just a shit ton of these out there and nobody wants these and, and nobody cares. So Bitcoin has that kind of like community behind it. Ethereum and Litecoin maybe have a little bit, they have a couple different advantages that I but, don't know enough about. But, that but assume like, that there's actually, I mean, the big challenge at this point, so everyone knows that Bitcoin and uh, a few different cryptocurrencies have already established themselves to some degree. At this point, the main challenge to become a real viable currency and not just a purely speculative kind of asset is uh, for people to actually start transacting in it. Yeah. I thought one of the, maybe like the, the way forward for these cryptocurrencies would be you know, in Zimbabwe or in like Venezuela right now, which basically doesn't have a currency. 
you know, people would start using these well, to actually do why, business. Well, that's why that's why Bitcoin is doing so crazy good right now for a couple of reasons. Because Venezuela, what's going on in Venezuela, Zimbabwe, certain other countries, what happened in India, India and China are huge Bitcoin customers because India recently in the, I think, at the turn of the new year, so 2016 to 2017, Eliminated cash. Eliminated cash. Yeah. So, but everyone had to report their cash and then get it in credit. And then, so a lot of people were like, "Well, why don't I just shelter this in Bitcoin instead, and I don't have to report it?" So then it was like kind of like a tax evasion dodge. Uh, in China, similar. It's a it's a dodge way, coin. The dodge coin. <laughs> uh, if you can dodge a coin, you can do. <laughs> uh, you can dodge the blockchain. Um, but yeah, or you can dodge taxes. <laughs> Um, and you can get the hell out of Dodge uh, and buy an airplane ticket. Um, but yeah, and, and same thing in China where they think, you know, I mean, people speculate on currency manipulation and that kind of stuff or want to shelter money that they don't want to, they don't want to report to the government. But yeah, so there's a lot of, I mean, then that's what people in America point to. They're like, well, this is just an excuse to buy drugs and, and which is bullshit. Shelter. I don't think that's true. No, it's not. Well, it's because everyone points to Silk Road as the first, like, because yeah, like, oh, yeah, obviously, but, but like, I try to explain this to my uncle who complains about it. It's like, well, everyone's just going to use this to buy drugs. I'm like, currently, people use fiat currency by drugs, which is way more <laughs> yeah like way more i was just gonna say like there's why do you think every drug movie like if you watch no country for old men there's just mountains of cash like he has he has the suitcase full of cash that's your main <laughs> drug movie reference yeah. <laughs> no or, or yeah blow you think i think of blow johnny yeah, cash the scarface that's, and that's the thing the advent of bitcoin is really gonna ruin those scenes in drug movies <laughs> where just there's not gonna be no johnny depp scene where he's counting the piles of cash. yeah, yeah then the, they're gonna have to have the uh who's the guy i think it's don Cheadle who's like the techie guy in Ocean's Eleven who yeah. can hack into anything. Yeah, that guy's yeah. going to have to start being in every fucking movie. Or ludicrous in Fast and Furious. Exactly. <laughs> um, so anyway, let, let's move on now to this other topic. Uh, this is a the debut of a new segment. New segment. We are calling um, the Nationalized Conversation. The idea behind this is that we exist in a very... Needless, pointlessly litigious society. And when I say pointlessly litigious, I, hate I mean litigators. <laughs> I mean that litigators, litigators are doing the Lord's work. Okay? <laughs> I'm just kidding; they're not. Um, but like, we, like people, things are hashed out on Twitter and stuff like that. And, and and one easy escape is for people to say we need to have a conversation about something. We need to have a national conversation about this. And granted, hack, there are hack bit. <laughs> there Which are we are using as our main flagship segment. Yeah. <laughs> we are taking this to the bank. Yeah, the big. And you're going to take it to the bank if you comment. Um, the Doge Bank. The Doge Bank. Um, and it's 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 a cop out. It's a cop out. Saying that we ending a controversy and saying we need to have a conversation about it is basically a cop out. Uh, by you're you're you're. You're forsaking having to have an opinion on something. I equate it a lot with, like, awareness culture. Like, are we running this fun run to uh, cure breast cancer? No, we're running it to make to spread awareness of breast cancer. Like, oh, okay, I get it. And so there's no yeah, actual... We're, we're not aware of there's breast no, cancer. It's not... It's well, going Susan towards nothing. of the world where it's like, yeah, oh, it's like, how much of this goes to research? And it's like, well, why isn't the NHS... Like, why isn't it the fraction that's going to the F-35 fighter going Is to... Is Susan G. Komen dead? Do, you, do we know, know if she was a sufferer that died? Or I don't know. I what if she's know. like, would you be pissed off if you found out that Susan G. Coma was like alive and well and living in Concord, Massachusetts? Uh, I don't know. I was already pissed off enough of them when they were the ones who were going to pull funding from Planned Parenthood. And then again, not another Bloomberg reference, but it was the most baller thing Bloomberg ever did. Bloomberg said when Susan G. Komen Foundation said that they were going to pull funding from Planned Parenthood, Bloomberg said... I will match whatever donation comes in for the next week if uh, until they the, in, until they say that they're going to fund just to shame them just to shame that's them. so cool well, why do they like, why do they want to pull from it was them? it was something to do they were I think they were nervous about whatever was going on in Congress at the time or like oh, I, they, fuck that. yeah they, they I I don't I don't remember the reason why but it was kind of a baller ass billionaire move to be like well I'll just put up the money. And you guys can be shamed publicly by this. So uh, that's that's why a I'm lot not. of things when you're a billionaire are like if and I were also a, on my shit list because for the entire month of October they make NFL players wear pink and it, in a shameless way it's like insulting to women where it's like oh, we'll get women to watch the NFL by making the players wear pink. It's like how dumb do you think 
That's not, not dude. That I I I completely agree with the vitriol. I don't direct it necessarily at them, and they also make the play players in April use bats, like yeah. pink, pink bats. But it's not them doing it. It's, it's yeah. the sports leagues that are trying to attract female. I know, like viewers. I, said, I blame, like, so I can't blame Roger Goodell in that case. Right? Yeah, let's and, just hate on Roger Goodell. Yeah, well, he's the most hateable man in America, <laughs> which will be a future topic on this podcast. Who is the most hateable man in America? No, and also my my plan to crowdsource a certain financing operation. Oh, and I think yeah, that'll be a plan. But to be. All right. We'll leave you. To We're going to tag Gary Vaynerchuk in that because, you know, his whole thing is he wants to, like, buy the Jets. Oh, yeah. He, well, he is, yeah. Oh, yeah. Then we'll, I'll work with – we'll tweet at him all day and then help uh, get him getting in on he's this gonna, uh, I don't want to – then he's going to have to be on the podcast. I don't want that. He's a, He'll do it too, which we don't want that. <laughs> uh, so, anyway, the, the first uh, installation of this, this uh, nationalized conversation we're going to do is um, – uh, so every, the, the concept here is that every time – uh, one of us hears someone saying, you know, we really need to have this conversation. We're just going to have a conversation for real. So the aforementioned uh, meta conversation is now going to transmogrify into the actual balls out conversation. And uh, that's where we are. So I was listening to this uh, podcast with um, Masha Gessen, who is a um, she was a natively Soviet, now living in the United States. Um, journalist, frequent uh, expert on and critic of Vladimir Putin, and um, she had this to say. Basically, what the intelligence agencies are arguing is that the Russian government hacked the DNC and used the product of those hacks to influence American public opinion out in the open to help Donald Trump. The illegal and problematic part of it is the hacking. But then with the participation of the New York Times, the Washington Post, a variety of cable channels, the products of those hacks influenced public opinion, which influenced the outcome of the election. Whether or not that kind of influence was actually legitimate journalistic activity on the part of Americans is something that we need to have a conversation about. Thanks, Masha. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the question is basically: Is is there? What she's referring to is um, WikiLeaks and um, the idea that uh, the, the this kind of bromide that the Russians hacked the election. And I agree that it's a lazy phraseology. It's been too widely talked about in that way. Um, even though there has actually been evidence that has been pretty abundant and growing in abundance that the Russians were actually physically trying to hack voting machines. <laughs> I mean, like, I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm not that precious about saying, like, let's be exact with our terms here. Like, they... If they could have just fucking hacked oh, yeah. and, and inserted, you know, some like uh, the, the Puxitani Phil yeah. as the president, they would have done that. Oh yeah, for sure. But, um, <laughs> they they couldn't. So, but I, I don't think it, I don't have a problem saying they hacked the election. The problem is she is she and I agree with her on this. And she was saying this on on Glenn Greenwald's show. Um, is it's it's very lazy for us to attribute Trump to Russia, and that's obviously what like Bill Maher and like a lot and Rachel Maddow. Uh, which we don't, we shouldn't go into, but like, uh, you know, a lot of these kind of like hack liberal pundits have just caught up on this really easily understandable story about Russian interference and basically pointed at that and been like, that's why things aren't normal. You know, not that there's been this huge total uh, defection away from established politics and there was basically a, a protest vote who didn't talk like a politician and you know right. yeah. and so and it gets because, away from because of the media those media class people like Bill Maher and Rachel Maddow had, were, are completely out of touch with the people that and are Klein and, and everyone who enforces yeah. those yeah, yeah. so the question that, that Masha Gessen raises is um, is it really that easy to say that Russia did something that was like or that like WikiLeaks by releasing the uh, the Podesta emails where does the line fall between that and journalism? I mean, if the New York Times released the Podesta emails because they somehow got it through some investigative means, would that have been the New York Times hacked the election? Well, the WikiLeaks also promotes themselves as an independent journalist or nonprofit journalist organization. Like they, they see themselves. I'm not saying I'm not saying this, but they see themselves as a hacker era libertarian pro publica. I think like or they or, or kind of a that's what they're called. They're like they're a nonprofit. They're organization. an anti secrecy organization. Yeah, they're anti secrecy and transparency. And I mean, they're and also all these people who are, were super 
jazzed up about WikiLeaks when, uh, you know, when this Edward Snowden stuff was going down and Bradley Manning, or Chelsea Manning, rather, uh, released information about that was about journalists being murdered by the United States military. Yeah, when we killed <laughs> the BBC journalists in drone strikes. Yeah, yeah. And, and so they were super psyched up on WikiLeaks then, being like, this is the future of journalism. And then all of a sudden, when it kind of fit that, like, you know, they're, they're not realizing that sword cut both ways. They're like, uh, I, I think that's like, I, I think that's the issue. I'm not saying that I'm not a necessarily. I would have been. Your question is, what would it have been different had it been the New York Times doing it? That's a good question. I, I think. think well, let's have a conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, hold we on, need I, to have a conversation about this. We need to have a conversation now. I, by the way, just I'm gonna really really get totally tagged as Russian fucking Twitter bots or something. That's right. That's why tagged is worse. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, WikiLeaks has definitely soured in everyone's eyes. I think. Uh, yeah, like when they were releasing drone footage, if they were releasing, it was not them, but if they were releasing Abu Ghraib stuff, uh, you know, that is that, that's material that needs to be out in the public. I. But I think one of the things that kind of sent Julian Assange down his rabbit hole um, that he's currently in is that people kind of shrugged at a lot of what WikiLeaks was saying. I mean, a lot of the diplomatic cables in that first huge dump from years ago, from yeah. way before this campaign, yeah. um, a lot of them sh- – some of them showed, you know, like they, they were taking a shit on the Saudi – the House of Saud, which like good. Everyone, right. I'm sure every diplomat in that country is talking about what a basket case those people are. Yeah, yeah. You, mean, you mean the guy who's – yeah, who's inbred, probably has Alzheimer's <laughs> and is financing most terrorism in the region. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> Orb-touching motherfucker. <laughs> Uh, I love the orb though. <laughs> the orb, and yeah, dude, the orb, the orb is the coolest thing. The know. orb is perfect. Yeah, it's all knowing. It's like it from Wrinkle yeah. Time. Yeah. Um, but uh, a lot of the cables that they released back then showed these diplomats like just trying to solve problems and like actually doing uh, good in the world, basically, for lack of a better term. And I think that there's this like mode of uh, kind of anti-realpolitik that sees the United. It's like this Oliver Stone view that sees the United States this is unmitigated evil and oppressor in the world and like when you see a cable from diplomats that are like yeah we may be like have imperialist tendencies and we need to have a conversation about those tendencies yeah, yeah, yeah. and kind of figure them out and definitely prosecute them a, a little bit differently you know hopefully in a way that spread prosperity as opposed to just making people client states yeah but you also have people that are genuinely like trying to to help democracy, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, I mean, not that I'm involved with democracy, but like human rights and stuff, and yeah, respect yeah. people and, and freedom. And so um, I think that people kind of shrugged their shoulders and WikiLeaks took this dark turn, and um, and Julian Assange became this basically troll, like, and, and he became, and like, I think that you, it's really hard, rightfully so, to sell the public on the idea that secrecy is bad. I wouldn't be able to do my job without secrecy, let alone if I was in charge of negotiating on behalf of the world's only preponderant superpower yeah. with another country. I mean, I it, it, I get it. I don't begrudge them that. Um, and uh, I think that, that that kind of goes to the heart of what the difference is. If the New York Times, in my opinion, if they released something that, that was – if they released something that was of as little consequence as the Podesta emails were, to my understanding as a civilian, I would – uh, that would denigrate the New York Times, in uh, in my opinion. They release the Pentagon Papers because it's relevant, because the public needs to know about it. They right. release Snowden files because the public needs to know about it. Oh yeah, the Podesta emails were fucking petty stuff that Politico. It was how to make ris- risotto, <laughs> you know, and then some other stuff about yeah about Bernie Sanders and like uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz and some of that other stuff, which I guess you could argue influenced the election in some ways. Um, but it was just yeah, it was it was the most of it was kind of. And I even read a lot of like a lot of people I talked to on the right that were jazzed up on the wiki. It was it was weird to before the election talk to people on the right that I knew that were uh, psyched up on WikiLeaks because I was like you know you again it's similar to my point before where it's that they weren't. They would if the New York Times had re- released it. They probably wouldn't have read it. Either. Yeah, that's yeah, true. Yeah, they wouldn't yeah, have believed it either. They wouldn't have believed it. No, that's it. But they're like, uh, they're like, oh, I can read Hillary Clinton's emails. I can read John Podesta's emails. So I'm going to do it. And uh, these people who are just like regular people, 
who work normal jobs. And I'm like, why are you wasting your time? I, I read a handful of them, and I trusted the people at Politico or whoever else is going to sift through them to be to get if anything interesting happened, I was going to hear about it. Yeah. Uh, but I'm like, I'm not going to read all this. it's like all these banal these banal emails are about like the bureaucratic operations of uh, of the stupid political campaign yeah. that ultimately failed. Is it in the public <laughs> interest? Is it in the public interest to have those? So if the New York Times gets a hold of them, do you think they should publish them? Uh, I don't know. I don't think so. I I, I, I agree. I just don't see any... I I think Julian Assange, I think, is an example of what happened. I think he's become what is become... was certainly what ran a lot of Trump's campaign online, which was just these... He's he's stuck in a basement at the Ecuadorian embassy, like just firing off missives into the internet. He only has an internet connection and a computer. That's all he's got. So he's got nothing. Pamela, to do. do you know who Pamela Anderson is trying to date him? Yeah, I heard about that. But and she like crazy. goes and visits him all the time. Oh god. Um, but Although to be fair, most of my encounters with Pamela Anderson have also been over the internet. So. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> um, yeah, but like, so maybe that's why uh, she as a as a current internet. Uh, person, person. Oh, but, but my point, but to not distract from my point, is that like the same. We always talk about the people who are like the Trump kind of chuds or the the Pepe kind of guys who are just kind of sitting on the internet all day in their mom's basement and pissed off about what like uh, they're just like, oh, this guy is finally taking one back for white guys who want to just say whatever they want to say. Uh, <laughs> finally, finally, we have the power. Yeah, and they they just want to troll people and stuff, and they want to be like feel like they're part of like anonymous or whatever the whatever movement. Uh, stupid online. So any movement, any yeah. movement that is that seems or feels yeah, and, it's, and they they they're abstracted from it because they just sit on a computer for sixteen hours a day and they don't they don't go out and interact with people. So and those people saw they're four. These are the four hundred pound people in their on their sitting on their beds. Yeah, that yeah. Trump prefers yeah, to, yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, I think that's his base. It is his base. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think that uh, I don't. I I don't know. We I, I think we should resolve to to, con- to like find a conclusion to this topic. Would would it have been hacking? You know, I think that in terms of the the optics of it, just by definition, anything that comes through the New York Times or an official channel would be not hacking because that's the that's our normal established method of information dissemination. Right. It wouldn't have rattled anyone. Yeah. It, it would have been the expected source. Um, I'm presuming in this case, in that hypothetical, that there's still the sort of editorial prudence being applied to it that I would assume is yeah. being applied to it. I mean, the, the New York Times didn't publish a lot of the Snowden files, and the Washington Post didn't either. They, but they had to. They all had to. But and they all kind of had a gentleman's agreement. I think Washington Post Times and and I think the, the Guardian, Guardian yeah. also kind of where they all decided on. Well, these are what. But, we're but that's the point. It wasn't. It, it wasn't so much a gentleman's agreement as that. I think that it was. It, it, it can be equally quaint in your eyes if you want. But yeah. it was a journalistic integrity thing. It's like yeah. what is what is of use to the public. What's not. And they published what was, and I think that some of it was really subversive and, and dangerous and good. Um, and I'm saying, you know, in, in a positive way, and right. and it still did the job. You don't have to put fucking everything out there. That's the thing that separates it. And then there's also the matter that we know for almost a fact that Russia was trying to throw the election to Donald Trump. It right. makes it different. The intention makes it. Different. I think that's. I think though, and this is the unfortunate thing about it. And this is what the national – it's like I think we all try to make the case that, yeah, I agree. We should be paying for journalism. We should be paying for good journalism. And what a lot of our current circumstance right now is because we're all just like whatever. We'll just – whatever Aunt, Aunt Agnes shared on Facebook, we're going to like – we're going to th- take as uh, fact you, you, like, that w- whether it was a New York Times article or just something that was some bullshit that was on a random blog that was financed by – whatever source that was financing and didn't do the du- journalistic due diligence or just essentially made something up. Um, yeah. And like, and WikiLeaks seems to have a weird, like WikiLeaks though is a representation of, of something. And I don't agree with it. And that it's like, maybe we, I think this maybe makes the case. I'm confusing my points a little bit. This maybe makes the case that I think the United States should have something like a BBC equivalent and everyone gets scared about state. Funding we have PBS. Media. But I know, it's PBS not, yeah, is no, not the same, and PBS is a lot. NPR of is great. NPR is great, but then people accuse NPR of, and NPR is also a lot. Even though it's, it, it is partially federally and state funded, is mostly funded by pri- private donations. And and we've talked about that because I remember before saying, and viewers like you, and viewers like you, and, yeah, and you get a tote bag, and you get to go to one event where Terry Gross says some stuff in a soft voice or something like that. Um, and, ASMR conference, yeah, yeah, in an ASMR conference in uh, Philadelphia. Uh, 
uh, W H Y Y. Um, and so you hi. Uh, but yeah, so I think I think that's the only solution. I think that like I think because here's the thing is that the New York Times can have the journalist integrity and the Wall Street Journal and Washington Post and whoever can have the journalist integrity to make the decision for you. But at the end of the day, those are private businesses and they're they're like they're companies that Well, like, I don't know I don't know if I'd trust the government a government funded agency to do more yeah, but I think it's re- like, revelatory work about the I government. I think then but the government so then I mean a, you have a we have other institutions like and then the whatever funding goes into uh, the NPR or PBS of the and the funding that goes into it to making sure that it's and there, there's a blind trust fund that goes into a ProPublica or a another auditing you know like a, essentially a truth auditing fund I think it's it's done enough in public injury at this point that we need to make it and yeah state fund I understand that the road to hell is paved with good intentions and state sponsored media could potentially be a bad thing but I don't I don't see no that. I'm not saying I don't I'm not I'm not afraid of that yeah. I think a lot of people are, though. I think that's certainly an American thing, that people are afraid of state... People, Americans are pretty fucking stupid. <laughs> Americans are afraid of state-sponsored everything. Yeah, that's true. Be, do you realize how hard it would be to pass an, an interstate spending bill now if we didn't already have the that's highways? Yeah. It would be... we got to get Ike back. <laughs> we like Ike. we got to uh, put, anyway, put our money in the crowd. I, I, like. I, guess, uh, I guess maybe, yeah, we'll move on to the next topic, but I think that... Uh, uh, that's my solution for the nationalized conversation. Uh, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not actually positive what it was. My solution is state-sponsored, more funding. Uh, more state-sponsored. Okay. Sponsored media. So the answer to the question of uh, whether the limit of journalism, where, where journalism stops and trolling begins, the answer is we need more state-sponsored media. Yes. Gotcha. Okay, let's move on to our last topic, which is um, this delightful survey that has been much written about recently because – Brian, everyone's on a word count, and everyone's got to turn in three <laughs> articles a day. We've been there. Um, <laughs> and uh, and they got to write about something. So uh, there was this Pew survey that came out. Um, yeah, um, I know. Seamus, it, I, I also wonder about their leaning sometimes. Seamus questioned the validity of the Pew survey. And, you know, it's not like it's, you know, it, it wasn't uh, Demos, it, and it wasn't Heartland. I think that they're they're reliable. Uh, Seamus, but um, basically the uh, the question was like, wh- how how do you feel about higher education? And there was a majority of Republicans who said that higher education was not beneficial to the country. It was uh, Democrats um, said seventy three percent said that it was um, uh, well, it led led to a better uh, like it prepared you for the modern economy. That's what right. I'm trying to say. Um, I can't pull up the, I can't find the stats but anyway like 36% or something like that said that they approved of the way that like higher education you know said that it was good for the country right and here's the thing 36% of Republicans and so the idea is is there's this kind of like massive groundswell of the right and moderate right that is totally rebelling against higher education to a degree that has yet not been seen Um, and I think that what we're supposed to do is link this to the general Republican aversion to discussing climate change science, yeah. and you know, yeah. wanting and, and Texas, you know, PTO boards that you know reference the War of Northern Aggression in their textbooks yeah, yeah. instead of and, and talk about you know dinosaur bones were coequal with Adam and Eve. Yeah, I don't see it that way. I fucking agree with these Republicans. I don't like higher education either. Well, you don't like it because, but they, you they, you think your perception there, you don't like it. Not because of the anti-intellectualism arguments, which is why the the general perception is that they're they're anti. Yeah, of course they are, and I totally yeah, I think they're stupid rubes, but uh, or at least the ones that think that um, not studying, you know, that avoiding actual intake of information is going to be benefit the society. Um, yeah, of course I disagree with that. I disagree with the uh, there's a um, uh, Ben Shapiro quote. That's like <laughs> this. This podcast does not endorse Ben Shapiro. <laughs> the Ben Shapiro quote is: ah, "I can't reach this can of peas." <laughs> so high. No, the, the, it's like you'd have to be super. You have to be really that well educated to be that stupid, you know. Yeah, and it's yeah. this like anti, which is funny because Ben Shapiro is a little fucking nerd, yeah. who went to Harvard and who has made his entire. Uh, you know, he, he eats his lunch off being the, someone who can. Give intellectual voice to all the inchoate bullshit that the you know normal you right. know. Well, he's taking uh, hard, advantage hard of his yeah. So yeah, exactly. So I, but I, I totally resent that line of of anti intellectualism, anti scholasticism on the right. But on the pure question of 
uh, whether higher education is good for this country. I don't think it is. I mean, I'm in a lot well, of debt. At, I, at, at the price that it is, for sure, no. And also, oh, what man. benefits it gives you? I mean, the, I think we we were, you know, unfortunate circumstances of an, a generation that kind of landed at the exact wrong point on the higher education spectrum where people were, were just telling us our whole lives that because the, pre, the generation that had come before us said that, hey, the, the pathway to a better life is through education, which it was for them. So that was the truth, I think. It's for true us. for us too statistically, but, but it's not but, – But it's not, but not because – Yeah, exactly. Not because we just went and got it – and fun, yeah, functionally for sure. I think my, – my point is that I think we were raised – as opposed to just saying like, hey – uh, and you could even hear it in my parents when they told me to go to college. They were like, yeah, just study whatever. You'll get a job and pay off that debt. No problem. Here I am. <laughs> Still in that debt. <laughs> and, many, uh, and I think there's many Americans my age and younger and older that are still dealing with that problem as well. So, and as the debt, which we should, I wish there should be just some kind of, there has to be at some point. I think there has to be at some point a debt. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Or oh my forgiveness. god! I, would, I don't. I don't think. Think, about, debt think for, about how much that would be the next New Deal. If they did debt forgiveness for a generation, think about how much. I mean, it would, probably, would be free. To, oh my god! It would be amazing. Would, think about like we would have. It would free up so much more money that I, I had, and I would be like, oh, maybe I actually will be a property owner someday, <laughs> or or I maybe I will have just like enough money to. Survive. Even if they just refine. I mean, I, you know, I understand the structural reasons not to do that because then. Everyone's just going to – it's like the bailout problem. Yeah. They'll assume you're going to get – Moral hazard, yeah. 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 Uh-huh. But it's also – I mean I would love it. I think – I mean it would definitely be – aside from the moral hazard of it, you would free up a ton of money to go plow into the economy all at once. Right. You'd liber- literally liberate our entire generation. Oh, yeah. I mean like I could move if I wanted to. I could – you know, whatever. I could do a lot of things. Um, I think that the other problem in addition to the debt – piece, which is, and you know, there, there's many explanations for the debt piece too. I mean, there's, you know, some people have a somewhat compelling argument that government subsidy is what has inflated prices so much. Yeah, you know, no, no, I think that, well, but, I think that, and, and higher education has taken advantage of yeah, that. They, yeah, they, they, they just cashed in on uh, like a, the free free government money. They cashed in on it. They, it turned, it, it, they, they totally followed the idea of, uh, since they could make so much money on it, it turned students into a consumer class that could demand. Um, you know, an experience as opposed to uh, any kind of functional learning opportunity. Right, right. You know, the other thing, speaking of our parents' generation, our parents' generation gave us Animal House. Yeah. And like, you know, it's crazy to think of a time when Animal House was like, this is a, you know, this is a landmark. This is what really happens at college, you know, and it's like this expose, you know, inside joke basically that, yeah. my, you know, my dad and his friends were in on. Oh, for sure. And yeah. then all of a sudden that turned into just the blueprint, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's kind of like how, um, uh, like, you know, Patrick Bateman was supposed to be this saving critique of 80s Masters of the Universe. Yeah. And and then what did a bunch of bros do was toss down Liar's Poker, instead watch American Psycho, yeah. and then they were like, oh, I want to be like that well, guy. Even, I completely missed the point. Michael Lewis even said that, and he, he rewrote a preface, I think, to Liar's Poker, where he said that the generation that I wrote this for as a cautionary tale completely missed the point and was was I got a, all of a sudden got calls from all these bros at Ohio State and Michigan University who were like how how do I get a job like how do you get me that job at Goldman Sachs or Solomon Brothers or whatever can you imagine having yeah. a balls to call Michael Lewis to yeah. ask him to get him a, you a well, job those, those, <laughs> the kind of people, those are the kind of people who would do that like who would want to be Patrick Bateman who would actually just be like yeah I deserve this like I deserve millions of dollars in a cocaine addiction <laughs> like, like, that I can afford to have like, <laughs> they're gonna afford to have still live a nice life and probably own property and live a completely shallow hollow existence yeah. I mean they're gonna live a shallow hollow existence regardless no, no, they no, might no, do it that's a good point while I most of the time mm-hmm. uh, yeah I mean I, we, they, they presented us this model of, of what college was supposed to be that was entirely based off of a consumptive impulse rather than any kind of a skill acquisition and you know we live in a world where like there are more skills needed now than ever. I'm not referring to the skills gap. There's supposedly still a hiring uh, gap in place like or that we can't move basically because 
it does right. not have to do. It does not have to do with the fact that we're underskilled. It has to do with the fact that they don't know how to raise wages. Yeah. They don't know how to do training yes, for employees. Yes, They're, they have algorithms that are filtering out resume instead of having people look and see. I wonder if this human being can do this job that we right. could pay to invest them. Or just even they they could they have the potential that we could teach them how to do it. Yeah, and, because I, yeah. So I don't. I'm not saying I'm not buying into the skills gap bullshit in that sense. But there is a huge skills gap in terms of like, you know, literacy matters for. A lot, but we don't. It, literacy is increasingly uh, the stakes of it are going up. I mean, I we, we anti literacy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, uh, socialized news source. Anti literacy pros. Do you know there's twenty three, no, twenty four percent of the country that doesn't have access to the to broadband. This country, yeah. You you know, last time we were talking about Lyndon Johnson bringing water to West Texas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that problem. Do you see any political ability to solve the 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 digital divide? Well, that's why. No, no, I think uh, I don't have the stats on it, but that's why Eastern Tennessee is doing really well for itself. Places like Chattanooga. Chattanooga has some of the best. We got to we got to look forward. Some forward thinking public thinkers that were bipartisan and said like, "Hey, look, we're gonna we're gonna just make an investment in town." That is, and we're going to ignore the monopolies of certain uh, ISPs and stuff like that. And we're going to provide the best broadband service in America. And now they've gotten they've got a kind of a, an economy that's uh, on the upswing um, in a town that was a rust like rust. Hell yeah, in, Chattanooga, in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, um, but but yeah, so but, you, but you're right. So like, the, but that's a good example of, of what could happen. Uh, you know, I don't think broad. Broadband solution. That's I'm your, just saying. My, my yeah. point. Uh, my, I was I was mentioning that in, in terms of the digital divide yeah. and the skill gap, and um, the fact that like college has, if college was still as effective as it was like 100 years ago at, at educating everyone that came into it, I think we would all be able to like code really well. You know, to some degree, college has always been a social, uh, a, a class that, incubator, yeah. and but. But it really now all it is is that I mean it you know and, and people and, yeah, I certainly like oh not to interrupt you I I I certainly gained I think I gained a lot of I took college because I'm a nerd I took college seriously and was you know and had fun and all that stuff but I also realized that I was there to get an education and, and studied and all that stupid stuff um, I think I had the reverse problem of most college students where it's like when I showed up freshman year I was actually a really good student and then as I slowly started to realize that. And nothing, none of this matters, and I kind of got the picture that I started to like just slowly just not start to not. Show. I, towards my senior year, I was just writing papers, drinking whiskey, um, and uh, but yeah. So I, I don't think that um, I, I think that the, the I don't think I think I learned a lot of good things in college, and I think I learned a lot of good skills about just time management, and also just like just skills about. Oh come on! You didn't learn any time management skills in college. Yeah, I mean, but I did learn. I took a lot of cool courses. I think on things it's, that it's I wasn't stuff that it's yeah. stuff that like is electively fun. It's stuff that you could learn by like, t- you know, reading a book or something like that. Yeah, it, like, yeah. It, do, do you think it like prepared you to do your job you're doing? No, it doesn't. It, it, yeah, I very guess, little of it. Very, I guess so. But, like, but teaching everyone to code is not a good solution either. No, I'm not yeah, saying that. Yeah. I'm just saying that. that it, I also took computer science classes, <laughs> so like, so it did kind of like I took some computer. It I, it was can a computer be science useful. Major, like, I'm not even saying this has nothing to do with the like you know bat, like people shouldn't take the humanities classes. Like I think that's bullshit too. I'm just saying that I don't think we. I think that the goal of public of, of society should be we have a public education uh, at the at the minimum. If you can't afford a private school, you go to public school, which, so that's currently the case. Well, and that's how you And at the it, end right? of that curriculum, by the time you're 18, you should be able to start living life debt-free with enough skills and, and with the social assumption that you don't know everything, but they're going to train you. And uh, without the fucking class you know, badge that you get from having gone to one of these schools. Right. And the, to pay for that badge, you get – you have to pay a ton of money. Uh, and that you're never going to crawl out of until you're, then, you know, 38 years old. Right, and that's the thing. That, well, I mean, if you would, you know, hindsight being 2020, but giving a 17 year old or 18 year old that decision was just such a dumb idea. My parents were like, "This is how much it'll cost. Are you okay with like taking on that?" What did you say? No. Like, yeah, exactly. I was like, "Well, this is the right one for me. I liked it." And they sold me a consumer product, and I was just like, "Yeah, what are I? The, you, everyone in society, and you have told me that." That's, I the thing, the thing that I'm bitching about is that it was you made the right decision. You yeah. had to go to a you right. know it, you, you were better off going to a private school than some you know even a SUNY probably yeah well, for sure and but, uh, and but it but it ultimately is not worth it. I don't think 
as a society, it's worth it. For me, it was worth it because that's the that's what we're stuck in. But anyway, that that's that's my feeling. Right? No, yeah, I, I think that I think so. I think then we should maybe take an attitude of I think to circle back to your point about. I think we shouldn't take the anti-intellectualism route. I think we should go and agree with those Republicans who are not liking college and say, yeah, a hundred percent, you know, what, if you want to get, if you want to go become a mechanic, the culture needs to change. It's like, if you want to become a mechanic, there's nothing wrong with that. And that's a cool thing. And that's a job that needs to be done. And, and well, mechan- it, well not mechanics is not mechanics are, there's well, not going to be that many mechanics anymore. Yeah. Or well, like, there'll be like, mechan- there'll be some, there but are, I mean, it, the, I'm not, I want there to be, by the time you're 18, from a from a tax funded education, you can live in the world. That's it. Whatever yeah. those skills are. That's true. Yeah. And or, and or and also, I think that also continues actually into adult life in a postmodern economy, where if you want to go back to school and you just say, "Hey, I work a job at the daytime, and I want to use my spare surplus hours after five o'clock." to not do a podcast and actually learn something. <laughs> yeah, that, even that even that would be better. Would be better. Fucking yeah, joining the IDF would be, you know, if we had like mandatory construction <laughs> or something like that. I, I mean, I'm, I haven't thought that through, but maybe even that would be better. You, wait, you, the Israeli defense force? Yeah. <laughs> you want an Israeli defense force? Well, not specifically that. No, but I agree. Like a national service kind of thing where you could Look, just... Look, if you're going to send a bunch of 18-year-olds to go do something as some sort of generational rite of passage... Why not have it be something? Oh, that, I agree. I agree with national service being yeah, or, or yeah, national or, or AmeriCorps or something. Or, about, you know, yeah. I think yeah. that you, you there should be more of an option to be like, hey, instead of going to college, we, you can also you can join the army, you can join the marines, you can join the navy, you can join AmeriCorps, you can join the Peace Corps, and you know that, these are the things that you'll do, and they'll we'll try to train you in skills for those things and do our best. And yeah, but, Brian, uh, solving problems as always here. Cheers. Yeah. Hey, cheers to that. Well, this has been another episode of Infinity License. Uh, we got a date with the uh, the Fleet Fox boys. And, oh uh, god, so it was so white. We're gonna be we're, we're gonna, gonna be go white, real white. We're soon. gonna be real white when we go see the uh, Fleet Foxes in uh, Prospect Park. So uh, we'll leave you. We'll leave you with that. We'll go play some croquet. We'll play some croquet. Wake him up right now. Emin, wake up. Come on. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you, Emin? I mean, let's get with it. You're always late. You're just another pretty face. I'm really tired of you. You're fired.